The Little Post is brought to you by Goodyear, helping you discover the road ahead. Goodyear, more driven. And as we move closer to the NBA playoffs, check out Brian Windhorst and the Hoop Collective for all of your NBA needs. Follow the show wherever you find your podcasts. ESPN Films' latest documentary, 144, executive produced by Shanae Agwumake, takes viewers inside the WNBA's unprecedented 2020 season. Four months after the WNBA postponed its season due to the COVID-19 pandemic, the league set out to play a condensed season entirely in a bubble, where 144 players across 12 teams not only came together to play basketball, but also to dedicate their season to social justice. 144 will premiere May 13th at 9 p.m. Eastern on ESPN. The film will be available on ESPN Plus immediately after its premiere. And now, The Low Post. Welcome to The Low Post podcast on Monday morning where there is just a lot of excitement going around the NBA, all kinds of playoff races, every seed seemingly still in play. And to help us sort through that, plus... One of my favorite awards to give out every year, six man of the year. It is time for the first time in too long, frankly, to say the three most anticipated words in the history of niche basketball podcasting. What up, Beck? <laughs> what up, Zach? It has been too long. Um, and, I, and, and now that I'm hearing you do that intro for the first time in what's I think it's been three months, maybe. Um, it's occurred to me, uh, if that is the most popular, most anticipated phrase in niche basketball, what would be second? It's uh, a great, that's a great question. Uh, maybe the listeners can help us out. There's got to be like, Maybe Chris Vernon's nicknames for uh, Kevin O'Connor, oh, Connor, yeah. who I just call Kevin O. Kem Birch hater now because he, he staked his position <laughs> as anti-Kem Birch. I am pro-Kem Birch. What? And this is going to be a Hatfield-McCoy-level feud where 50 years from now, Kevin O'Connor and I are still going to be feuding. No one is – our our descendants are going to be feuding. <laughs> We're all going to be long dead, including Kem Birch. No one will know why the O'Connors and the Lowe's are feuding but it will be because of Kem Birch and Kevin O'Connor's inflammatory comments I, about Kem Birch. I, so I, I, I have no uh, Kem in this fight. Um, why would anybody be anti-Kem Birch? I, I'm baffled have, and disturbed. I will not comment on behalf of Kevin O'Connor. Wow. Uh, so, Howard, here's what happened over the weekend. Are you ready? I, I, I have to be. The, the games are unfolding so fast that, uh-huh. like, like – yesterday seemingly the Lakers were like a 70% chance to get the fifth seed and now things done changed so here's what happened over the weekend Phoenix beat Utah Phoenix is currently number one in the west most projection systems because they have the tiebreaker most projection systems still have Utah about a 60-40 favorite to overtake the Suns if they would like to as the number one seed given schedule difficulties the fighting Denver Nuggets went into LA with Kawhi Leonard playing beat the Clippers, and are now in third in the Western Conference. Uh, the, uh, the, the projection systems are, are really like 50-50 uh, on playoff status and basketball reference in terms of who gets what seed uh, between those two guys. I mean, 50-40, 50 it's, it's, it's very close. That's like a toss-up. And then I think most interestingly, there is now a three-way tie for sixth I'm sorry, for fifth, sixth, and seventh in the Western Conference with the loser of that battle royale shoved into the play-in tournament. The Mavericks are 36 and 28. They would win a three-way tie, Mr. Beck. Do you know why? Uh, I read this within the last couple hours and have already forgotten it because it's just that arcane and confusing. Because in the event of a three-way tie, 
even if all three teams are in different divisions, as these teams are, the division winner, ah, yes. without even considering head-to-head, you don't even look at head-to-head, the Mavericks win a three-way tie, which is why most projection systems have them as the big favorite to get the fifth seed. I, I don't even know what division the Mavericks play in. The Southwest Mountain region, I don't even care about divisions anymore, but they get to play in. And Howard, won't somebody... Won't somebody just think of the Lakers? Won't someone just think of the Lakers? The league has created this play-in tournament as a conspiracy against the Lakers. LeBron doesn't like it. LeBron doesn't want to be part of the play-in tournament. Won't somebody think of the Lakers? And so, well, in, in all seriousness, just before this podcast began, things got even worse for the Lakers because Dennis Schroeder is going to miss 10 to 14 days due to health and safety protocols, obviously. The most important thing is we wish Dennis Schroeder good health and, and to him and his family and all of that. He's a new father. Um, and so that's the serious stuff. And that's a huge loss for the Lakers, even with LeBron and Anthony Davis back. The Lakers played the Nuggets in about 10 hours. Uh, it's unclear if LeBron is going to play in this game. Dave McMenamin made that clear in his recap of last night's loss to the Toronto Raptors and would be Laker theoretically Kyle Lowry trade target Kyle Lowry. Um, and so here we go. It's going to be a fun last couple weeks of the season. And um, this Friday, Mr. Beck looms potentially. I, I mean, is it is it hyperbole to call it maybe the single most important game of the regular season? Lakers Blazers in Portland. Currently, they are one one head to head. That game will decide the tiebreaker between them. The Blazers, I think the other story of the last week or so has been the Blazers recovering from a, what appeared to be a free fall winning four straight games. They got the Nets without without Durant, I think, or with only one of the three stars. I, don't, I can't keep track of which one of them plays when. They went in, bought into Boston and won on Sunday. Uh, their starting lineup is – I quietly, I've, I've said on this podcast, people laugh at me that the Blazers have a roadmap to be pretty good, even though their defense stinks. Their starting lineup is plus 14 per 100 possessions, 116 points per 100 possessions, 102 points allowed. That's a great defensive number. With Nurkic on the floor for the season – they're plus seven per 100 possessions, 107 points allowed, which is a very good like top five level number. They're trending in a lot of different ways the right way. And so here we are. It's it's absolutely I mean, everything is in play. Do you like the play in? I mean, we could let's start there because it's yeah. the Lakers and that's where everybody wants to start. Do you like the play in and how much trouble are the Lakers in? Well, let's let's start with the fact that clearly the play in is just part of the grand conspiracy that the NBA and everybody around it has been hatching for years to try to take down the Lakers. I mean, really, why would the league want the Lakers to be in, in the playoffs or anything? I will I mean, say uh, this, you know. though, LeBron, LeBron, to his credit, I first wrote about this idea in March 2018. The specific proposal that is under discussion now, we broke that yeah. news. And LeBron was asked about it that night and called it whack and not a good idea. So <laughs> this is not that. a case. This is not a case of a complete flip-flop or anything like that. He didn't like the idea when it was first proposed. He didn't like that. I, I think because sure. you, the whole you play 82 and it comes down to this sort of thing. It does seem, though, that people tend, people in the league, I think we're seeing a trend here, however. Once the play-in seems to be disadvantageous to you, yes. all of a sudden you get a little riled up about it. Yes. No, it's fine that he was on, on principle against it three years ago. That's fine. He's not complaining about it last night and talking about people should be fired on principle. It's because all of a sudden they're in danger. Let's be clear about that. Um, I love the plan 
frankly. And I'm not one who during the uh, fiercest, most intense and hand-wringing parts of the tanking era, I'm not one who was like, oh my God, it's destroying the... Like, I always thought the tanking discussions at the height of it were a little overwrought. Not that it's not a problem, not that it's not corrosive, a little overwrought. Yeah, I think Al Horford is listening to this now from a recliner watching <laughs> The Price is Right somewhere, maybe in Oklahoma City. I don't know. It's I'm sure it's a really nice recliner, though. Um, so, I, you know, as an anti-tanking measure, I don't actually put it this way. Forget anti-tanking. As an inducement to compete late in the season measure, it's fantastic. The fact that there are teams uh, going all out to try to avoid the play-in so that it actually, it actually matters now. I mean, it always mattered to be sixth instead of seventh, eighth, because you would rather not face the top teams, right? But... There's extra incentive now to go all out. I mean, Mark Cuban's complaint a couple weeks ago was in part, now we got to play guys and we can't rest them. Yes, that's good. More competition down the stretch. Now I want guys to be healthy too. And there's this delicate balance on, on these things, of course. But I would rather have all these different trigger points. You're, if you're fifth, you're trying to get to fourth for home court. If you're seventh you're trying to get, or eighth, you're trying to get to sixth to avoid the play-in. If you're 12th or 11th and you still have a chance to be in the play-in, you're, you're, you're shooting for that. There are more teams trying late in the season than we have ever seen. Statistically, that's true. Evan Wash from the NBA told me that for a story I did and for a podcast I did. So it's, it's statistically provable, demonstrable. More teams are competing this late in the season than ever. How can that possibly be a bad thing? Also, as much as, like everybody else, I want to see any team with LeBron James have a long playoff run because watching LeBron is fun. And however many years he still has in his prime as an elite player, I want to see maximized. I don't want to see like it, it's perverse to want to see the Lakers knocked out early. I understand people hate the Lakers. They hate LeBron. Everybody else who's just a basketball fan should want to see him in as long as possible. But that there are higher stakes now is interesting. Zach, I'm one who, as you know, has railed for years about the NBA having switched from best of five to best of seven in the first round. I like the suspense and the danger of best of five. This, this is adding another element of suspense and of danger for teams that are falling in that range. The Lakers shouldn't be there. Injuries put them there. This weird season has put them there and it's unfortunate, but as I said on Twitter last night and, you know, perverse as this may be. I kind of like the idea of the Lakers having to fight from play and all the way back to the finals. Like that would be a fascinating story. Well, and injuries have hit them to an unusual degree. I mean, injuries yes. and the protocols have hit everybody this season, but to lose two of the top six players in the NBA for a lot of time. And at the same time, the Lakers fans are right to say, yes, every team has had injury issues, right? The Nuggets are battling through not just Jamal Murray, but Will Barton and Monte Morris are out. The Clippers guys have missed time. Ibaka is somewhere. I don't know where the Mavericks got slammed by the virus. Nurkic and McCollum were hurt, et cetera. But I think the Lakers did legitimately have it worse than other teams, but every team has gotten hit. And also, you know, you look in the West, particularly the teams at the top are the ones that have been the healthiest yes. and, and essentially untouched by the virus. And also you know, credit to the Nuggets because making the conference finals in the bubble appears to have taken a toll on all four teams. You know, Miami and Boston are sixth and seventh in the, in the East. They are a combined eight games over 500. The Lakers are where they are. And the Nuggets, again, credit to them. They are playing fantastic basketball. They're 43 and 21. They're nine and one since Jamal Murray got hurt. Michael Porter Jr. is averaging 26 a game on 57% shooting in that stretch. He's ascending toward 
something maybe even greater uh, than stardom. And the Nuggets have had, they've found lightning in a bottle lately with this bench unit with Jermichael Green and Paul Millsap at the four and the five. And with Port, do you want to hear an incredible stat? I want to hear an incredible stat, yes. If I can find it. Uh, with Porter, Green, and Millsap on the floor. So basically Michael Porter and their bench. Those three, the Nuggets are plus 53 in 76 minutes for the season. <laughs> They're killing teams. And to your point, you know, it's a little under the radar because it's, it's not a team that tons of people care about. But I think the Wizards are perhaps growing into one of the coolest stories of the season because they got more than derailed by the virus. I mean, they got shut down. They got slammed. Uh, and here they are, 8-2 and two in their last 10. And zoom out, they've been playing well for a while now. They have a firm grip on 10th, some chance to move up. Uh, and look – Russ is playing well. He's been a great clutch shooter. Beal is back after a little a little hiatus playing well. They're getting great production from this three-headed center monster. Um, and I don't think anyone's going to be super excited to face them. That's a great story because that team had expectations coming into the season. I thought they were legitimate expectations, like a shoe-in to make the play-in. It looked like it was going to be a lost year. You worried for everybody there for jobs and stuff. And here they are. It takes a certain level of perseverance to dig out of that hole the way they – I know they're only 29 and 35. It doesn't sound great. I, I admire the hell out of how they've recovered in the last 30 games. And so statistically, I think maybe um, last I looked like the Mavericks might have had more games lost to the protocols than any other team. Like the Wizards were not number one on that list. Maybe they were number two. But just in terms of the impact, Zach, go back to January. Remember, the Wizards couldn't play or practice – for two weeks. Like, I don't think any other team was just wiped off the calendar for two straight weeks. They didn't even have enough bodies to practice. They couldn't do anything. Like, that's really, really tough to overcome. And of course, early in the season, you know, Russ was going through stuff physically and everything. So it's, it just took a while. So yeah, six games under 500. And the, the um, people who are critical of the play-in are going to look at that and say like, well, why do I want to see a team that's six games under 500 vying for a playoff spot anyway? Well, I would say this. One, in the Eastern Conference, it hasn't been unusual for a losing team to be in the playoff uh, in the playoffs anyway, sometimes even as high as the seventh seed. And I don't care if you're two games under or five games under. Like, either way, like you, were, you didn't have a great season. But teams get their stuff together at different points, and especially in a year like this one, that teams have had to overcome so much because of COVID or just contact tracing protocols, knocking guys out, to say nothing of all the injuries. There are teams that are actually playing better toward the end. I actually think that a team with a worse record but playing better might be the better team to have in at that point. And the Wizards, we all we knew they had the talent. Um, they never should have been as bad as they were, but a lot of that had to do with being wiped out for two straight weeks. And so, it's been it's been good for the league, just in just because the sort of quintessential team that we expected. Well, this is the team the play-in was made for. This is the team yeah. that's going to hang around all season and try to chase it. Is the Bulls. You know, especially when they made that trade for Vucevic, which was a trade I didn't love as much as most people did, but I thought would help their team. And Levine being out has completely torpedoed their season. They're now three games out. And so that race was in Toronto. Their three Toronto just sort of exists and they play a different starting five every game and you never know what you're going to get. But with the Wizards, they've sort of given that play in some juice that Chicago hasn't been able to really provide in, in the way that people expect. I, I look, I get the feeling of we play for six months to win that seed and then we got to play a game 
and and we could be gone. I get it. But to your point, and what I was worried about was a situation like last season where the Mavericks, who were the seventh seed, had a gigantic lead on eighth, right? The Mavericks were much closer to being a third seed than an eighth seed. And it would have felt unfair on some level to put a team of that quality in jeopardy of losing, you know, someone Jalen Brunson sprains his ankle, suddenly they're in trouble. That doesn't exist this year. Like seventh in the East is 34 and 31 and 10th is 29 and 35. Qualitatively, the Celtics are better than the Wizards, but not lately, not lately. In the West, seventh is 36 and 28. 10th is 31 and 32. It's a difference, but it's not such a big difference that when you wash out all the injuries and all the scheduling quirks and all the virus stuff, you're like, is Portland at seven dramatically better than San Antonio at 10? Does it feel unfair that the, the Blazers have earned or whoever has earned some so much leeway? I will say I would be – I wish there were a way to – in that Dallas is six games ahead scenario, I wish there were some sort of standings trigger – that would give a team like that even more of an advantage. But I'm just not sure how to do it for two reasons. Number one, the less random you make it, the less the, the more advantage you give. Like, say they have to lose three times or something if they hit a certain standing trigger. The whole point of it sort of goes away, and you're adding more games, which nobody wants to do. And the second part is, if the gap isn't between seven and eight, it could be between eight and nine or nine and ten. And so, like, it just becomes a little too complicated. And I frankly think the league has done a good job building a pretty strong advantage for the seven and eight seeds. Yes. Um, and that's the thing. If your complaint is, is, is about fairness, you know, my glib initial answer is, well, then be the sixth seed. Just win more. Be this like, I don't, I'm not going to sympathize. And if your answer is still, all right, yeah, but um, this was a year when like six teams in the West won 50 games or something. And we were seventh with 49 or so. Okay. If you're that good, you should be able to win a game. To, to keep to, to keep seventh, or if you lost that game, you should be able to beat the ninth or tenth team, whichever one comes out of that at part, home. That part at, at home. home. Not, I mean, maybe that doesn't now, matter as much this year, but it still matters. Right now, to the flip side of it, and the reason that I like it, and it contradicts me, it contradicts the argument I just made a little. The reason I like the play, and in some part, is because of the volatility and and the the danger there for any team in in it at all, because one bad ankle turn, one bad call, foul trouble, something weird happens, whatever. It doesn't take much even for a really good team to suddenly lose two games and be out. That would kind of suck. However, as I contradict myself. That's going to happen at some point in the history. If they keep the play in which I, it will be interesting to see if LeBron's objection and some of the other objections actually sort of influences the dialogue at the board of governors level. But I think they would like to keep the play in, particularly if they can prove to the owners that it makes money. Yes. And then that's the other thing here. So I think as a competitive matter, the league really loves where this is right now. It's gotten teams to be competitive late in the season and more teams are involved. More fan bases are are still engaged. All of that is good. The secondary, the secondary test after competition level is, well, does it generate interest when it's actually being played? What do the ratings look like? What do the games look like? How does it all play out? We've never done this before. But if that all goes well, Zach, I think it's a no-brainer that they're going to keep this, even if LeBron and some others have piped up with complaints. I will say one other thing, just to make this last point about um, fairness and all this. What we're talking about here is a competition to be the seventh and eighth seeds. And the seventh and eighth seeds, as I've written recently, 
are essentially cannon fodder. <laughs> With all due respect, that's what they are. Those seventh and eighth seeds almost never win in this league. Upsets in the first round uh, from from that uh, in that you know the one eight the seven uh, the two seven are extremely rare. Um, I wrote this, so let me uh, uh, reference real quick. Since 2003, when they went to best of seven in the first round, which I still object to, only one seventh seed has pulled an upset. Pulled an upset. That was the Spurs over the Mavs in, in 2010. There have been three upsets by an eighth seed. Uh, Warriors over Mavs in 07. That's the We Believe Warriors. Grizzlies over Spurs in 11. Sixers over Bulls in 2012 was the last one. And of course, that's when Derrick Rose went down with the ACL. So that's extreme circumstances. It just doesn't happen that often. And it hasn't happened in nine years. And, you know, I, I just, we're, we're arguing about fairness for who gets to be the seventh or eighth seed who are almost certainly going to lose in a best of seven series, because that part of the playoffs still has no suspense. I will, I will die on this hill though. I think if we're doing the play in the number one seed should get to pick its first round opponent between the two teams who emerge from the plane. Let's just like make up, let's just make up a scenario like this. Let's say the Grizzlies get seventh this year and the Warriors get eighth. And let's reimagine a scenario where the Warriors get eighth and Clay Thompson has played the last five games of the regular season. <laughs> the the number one seed, the team that has earned the number one seed, should have the right to be like, oh no, no, no. We don't want to see the Warriors. We want to see the Grizzlies. Even this season. Very sneakily, the New Orleans Pelicans have three games left against the Warriors, uh, including tonight in our Marvel game. Um, and uh, the, I mean, the Pelicans with Zion, like that's not I'm not psyched about that. If they somehow come out and get the eighth seed, I like I'm not really psyched about that. Uh, I will say if the Lakers are in the play in, I would pay a non-trivial sum of money to watch that game with Adam Silver and his top lieutenants and or um, some some people at the league's broadcast partners because there will be sages lit, there will be candles lit, there will be whatever superstition you have, they will be in play during those two and a half hours. You have have just fueled another 10 years of everybody's uh, NBA Laker conspiracy theories that they do everything possible to make sure that uh, LeBron gets in. Um, Look, the playoffs without LeBron would be a. I mean, the play-in, the play-in would be incredible tension and ratings. But oh, the no playoffs doubt. without LeBron would be a bummer. There's just no. They're the def- not just LeBron. Yeah. They're the defending champions. You want the defending champions in the playoffs as a fan. <clears throat> I just love the fact that because you're, you're, and I agree. Like if you're the number one seed, yeah, let's have that earn something. You earn the right to pick your first round opponent. Um, now, is it picking your first round opponent? Out of just seventh and eighth, or just anybody? the seventh and eighth? No, everyone okay, else just is out. Eighth. Just the seventh and eighth. It's, so it's a minor thing that may not ever matter. Yeah. But we do this for ten years. There's going to be a year yeah. where some team that's had a brutal injury year or whatever sneaks into the play-in and they're healthy, and the number one seed is like, "Oh, <laughs> that sucks." We talk about we played the whole season. We deserve a reward for that. Well, we played the whole season. We're number one. We deserve every possible reward that you can give us. I just like the fact that um, after years and years of this cliche of who's the team nobody wants to face in the first round, you could actually now avoid the team that no one wants to face in the first round. I said this last week too. The teams don't like that idea because they do not want to be put in a position where they have picked their (laughs) opponent and then they lose. They don't want to risk the embarrassment of it. And to that, I say you're a wimp and you, the basketball guys should punish your wimpiness. It's, it's great because, 
by virtue of of uh, taking advantage of this 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 new um, this new quirk, you have automatically given your first round opponent bulletin board material. Oh, they want us, huh? Oh, really? <laughs> well, you got us. Quirk I board material. Um, Does anybody use bulletin boards anymore? No, no. Um, look, that late that game, the Lakers have Denver and the Clippers in their next two games. Okay, Brutal. and then they finish with. New York at home, Houston, Indiana, New Orleans. Now, New Orleans could be in like die, like New Orleans could be either be out and rest everybody or desperate and play everybody and play super hard. But these next two games, Denver, Clippers, you know, if they lose both those games, they're going to probably be in seventh by the time they face Portland on Friday in what again looms as maybe the single most important regular season game of the season against the Blazers team that seems to have found its footing. And, you know, we'll see how the rest of the schedule unfolds. We'll see how Clippers Nuggets uh, unfolds, but just hats off to the Nuggets for, for how they continue to fight. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. For the ones who get it done! Granger offers high-quality supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as access to product specialists who have the knowledge and experience to answer your toughest questions. Plus, their commitment to being your safety partner can help you keep your facility safe and your people safer. Call or click Granger.com or just stop by. Just can't say enough about Phoenix. It's it's an incredible story. I thought they would be good. Um, I did not expect anything like this. Um and they've just done a phenomenal job. And they swept the Jazz. And I don't care that the Jazz had to play without Mitchell and Conley and Phoenix the other night. They blew the crap out of them. That was a good win. This is like such a fascinating season. Um, we're going to probably, years from now, we'll still probably be talking about like the weirdness of the Nets being thrown together and then never having those three guys on the court together in regular season. The, you know, um, LeBron and AD's injuries, all the COVID absences. Like there's all these, all these weird things. But on the plus side, the Suns and the Knicks, like they're the, the East and West analogs of each other. Like nobody could have seen any of this coming from either of them. And it's, and it's phenomenal. And every time we think, oh, that's a nice little story. Oh, oh, the Knicks are going to be good this year. Oh, that's, that's nice. No, no, no. We're uh, two weeks to go in the season and, there's, and they're the fourth seed in the East. It wasn't just we're going to hang out for a while and be respectable again. It's like, no, they're legitimately good. And the Suns, it was, oh, they're, they're going to have a breakthrough season. Oh, they got Chris Paul. They're going to be a playoff team. I, you know, they'll be, you know, lower part of the bracket. Like, oh, oh, they're hovering near the top. That's nice. And it's like, no, like with these two, these two teams, it just won't go away. And it just like stubbornly decided, you know what, um, actually, uh, we're, we're not doing that thing where you make gradual progress and you, you make the playoffs and you lose, and then you come back the next year and maybe you can make uh, top seat like no they're both just taking these ridiculous huge strides that nobody not even themselves could have seen coming and as i keep saying like this is the beauty of sport it's the stuff we can't see coming that's the fun part like i i they have they have pleasantly surprised us and for all that's gone weird or wrong this season um those are really cool stories as, and, and the wizards too as you point out for everything that they went through and the fact that they're still fighting at the end the knicks are now two games up 
<clears throat> on the fifth spot. So they have a pretty firm grip on four, but their schedule down the stretch is hellacious. They have a huge potential game, potentially huge game against Boston in the very last game of the season. Uh, but I mean, I was watching their game against the Rockets last night. Don't ask me why I was watching the Rockets. <laughs> um, and Randall just continues to go on these binges of shot making where you, you just look at the shots he's taking and think, I can't believe he's doing this. I mean, step backs along the baseline, pull up threes contested, um, isolations, jab, step, jab, step, jab, step, fade away, um, putting, you know, just roasting smaller guys when they switch. And you just look at the shot making. It's, it's incredible. He has a real all NBA case. I'm not sure he's going to make my real or fake ballot, whatever it ends up being. But he has a real all NBA case and they've done a, a, a great, great job. And let's that's a perfect transition into uh, our other subject for this podcast, which is six man of the year. And I wanted to highlight some more under the radar six man of the year candidates, because I think uh, Jordan Clarkson and Joe Ingles are going to go one, two uh, when all the votes are counted. I personally, I think Clarkson has faded enough that I, I think Joe Ingles incredible shooting numbers and playmaking have I probably would vote for him if the season ended today, but Clarkson's been mostly sensational for the jazz. And I do think given Utah's record, when all the hundred, whatever ballots are counted, they will finish one and two. So I wanted to highlight a few secondary guys, a few guys who maybe will be in play for the third one. And I, I don't think Derek Rose will be in play because of he's, he's missed, you know, half the season, but an absolutely incredible number that illustrates just how much Derrick Rose has changed the Knicks and how much that seemingly not significant trade, a trade, by the way, that a lot of Knicks fans were panicked about because of what it might mean for Emmanuel quickly. They were split. They were definitely split at the time. Knicks the fans. Knicks are plus 13 per 100 possessions with Derrick Rose on the floor. That is insane. That is the point differential of a historically great team. I mean, beyond that, you know, that, that's like the kind of thing you usually see that the kind of number where you look up like Joel Embiid's on-court differential. The, their starting five with Rose in place of Peyton has become one of the most reliable lineups in the NBA. He's played lights out for them. He, I, again, he's missed half the season, so I don't think he'll finish third in six man of the year, but he has been Derrick Rose. That trade changed the next season. Shockingly so. Um, think about the last time Derrick Rose was a Nick and how badly that went and how badly it ended. And the, 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 the 24 hours MIA where he didn't check in, it ended, it didn't just end badly. It ended with bad taste in everybody's mouths. I think the organization fans, everything. And so that, that he can be this impactful of a player at this stage. Um, it just, it, like, I don't even, I don't even know how to describe it, Zach. Like the, the number of different versions of Derrick Rose we've seen in the nine years since the ACL and the number of times we have collectively sort of written him off and not written off as a, as a, as a possibility of having a career, but in terms of impact, in terms of being a difference maker, um, what was the year? Didn't he's with Cleveland? They trade him. He went and ended up with Utah, where they just waved him Utah, out. Right, wait, right? Utah was like goodbye. Didn't even, didn't even think two seconds about keeping him. That that's how um, just uh, just disposable he felt at at that moment in time. I, I, that's a, that's a horrible word to use, but like I don't know how else to describe it. He he just he was like a player that the team would go like, okay, we made this trade and it was for cap purposes or something, and we're just going to wave Derek Rose. And look what he's doing with the Knicks now. 
Change their team. Change their team. And quickly hasn't really – I mean, his his role has taken a little bit of a step back, but he's still on track to make an all-rookie team. He's had a really nice season. For sure. Um, and Peyton is the one whose minutes have sort of dropped off. And it'll be interesting to see um, when Alec Burks comes back. You know, he had to sit for health and safety protocols. I, I think he's eligible to play now. He hasn't played yet. Um, he, I, I thought, was another under-the-radar candidate for, yes. you know, a six-man-of-the-year ballot spot too. Uh, absolutely. No, it was funny because as I was going through this, and I, was, I literally went at one point over the weekend, team by team, and I thought, like, the Knicks had three guys. Like, like I, I, not all of them in equal measure, of course. But at times this season quickly felt like sixth man of the year type uh, candidacy. Um, not, not, not played enough or scored enough or done enough probably to, to really merit that on his own team, of course, given Burks and his shooting, given Rose. By the way, I still don't think I've ever seen I, – I have this season have not seen Alec Burks miss a shot. I'm convinced of that. Um, I, I'm convinced he has not actually missed one. Uh, but Rose- shooting 41% from three on five attempts per game, when, which when you think back to what kind of shot selection and what kind of player he was earlier in his career is really remarkable. And people forget about Alec Burks. His career changed when Paul Pierce took him out of the air on a fast break and he suffered a really bad ankle injury that completely changed his athleticism and his body and put – if not put his career in peril, you know, I, he's going to make Mike Luke Walton all-star so I can spoil some of it. There was, there was some uncertainty about how that ankle would recover and what kind of rehab plan. And they toggled from one to another and nothing seemed to take. It's been wonderful to see him play such a key role for the Knicks this year. And sometimes like a sort of de facto point guard in a couple of lineups. I don't know if I've seen a team. I'm sure there have been others that the Knicks have, I feel like more guys who either were, written off or you, you just thought they'd already plateaued or whatever. Like look at the number of guys who are having not necessarily career years. Randall's obviously having a career year, but Reggie Bullock, Alec Burks, Derek Rose. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know if that's maybe that some of that is Tibbs and his staff. Maybe that it's some of that is at the players and maybe it's the timing of when they got them. Maybe it's just that weird, you know, um, you know, alchemy that sometimes happens with teams. The right guys get together at the right time and the right system and the right moment and boom, great things happen. But the number of guys that the Knicks have who are having either career years or bounce back years or just unexpected years is, is really rather remarkable. Um, I don't know exactly, like I say, how, how you parse out the credit there, credit to all of them, coaches, players and all, but it's, it is remarkable because it is, it's multiple guys who you say, wow, I, I could not have seen that coming. Give me another under the radar, uh, six man of the year, or maybe not even under the radar, just someone you think maybe probably won't make a ballot, but you want to give them a little love. Um, I don't know. I guess I, under that ha- category is Chris Boucher seems like a, a person to throw in there. Won't make it in large part because of their record, but a phenomenal year. He's on the, the list of most improved player candidates. Again, not sure if he'll make that ballot or not, given the number of, of great candidates on that one, too. But uh, Boucher. So I, I, um, <laughs> I did this. I got I, I got uh, six man's always like a really just a, it's, it's a weird, frustrating award. I love six man. Definition I love wise. What frustrates you about it? Um, what do we actually want out of it? Because, you know, traditionally what, what we did a here, good course, basketball player who comes basketball. off the bench and helps his team win games. That seems fair. So I, I, um, I got, I got, uh, I got weird. I got, I went, I went searching and did Nexus things and all kinds of stuff over the weekend. So I found Nexus, a, Nexus, Lexus, Nexus, the search engine. Oh yes. For, for news. Uh, I found a story from 1985 uh, right after they had established the six man of the year award 
because um, I was curious about its Only roots. you would come on this podcast and be like, well, I found this story from 1985 <laughs> on LexisNexis. I'm 98 years old, and this is what I did on my weekend. <laughs> I got curious. I fell down a rabbit hole. What can I tell you? Um, Red Auerbach uh, says in 1985 in this AP story that he, he established the sixth man concept that helped Boston become an NBA dynasty. Quote, in the old days, Auerbach said, every team used to start its best players and then come in with players of lesser ability. I wanted to change the concept of the game so that finished that the finishing lineup became a team's best, but it took a while because this extra starter, this sixth man has to be a special player. Auerbach said, and I, I kind of went down that road, Zach, in part because of all the pushback and all the, like the NBA nerddom, like, you know, uh, you know, poo-pooing every year. Like, oh, people just vote for the guy who scored the most hit a bench roll. Yeah. Cause that's kind of what the importance of the role has been. Like have a guy on your bench who can do things that the starters do like score a lot. Because sometimes if you, as, as Red Auerbach says, all your best players are in the starting lineup, all of a sudden your bench, not so potent. And so, yes, sometimes it has been low efficiency guys winning this award, but having somebody who can create and score off the bench is kind of important. Um, so people should be a little less snobby uh, is what I'm saying. I, I, I did also just look to say like, okay, because I, I like, I like precedent. I want to see like, is there a standard historically? And I did find um, if you go by like win shares, very rare that anybody has win shares under five and makes six man of the year. So you're, you're probably on a winning team. You're on a, you're on a good team and you, you, you contributed quite a bit to that good team adjusted for the shorter season this year, 4.4 win shares would be the cutoff. This is really an impressive level of preparation. I, I just, I, like I said, it, it just, I, things got weird. What can I tell you? I, I did way too much. I, I'm really change. interested to see who this, who, who, what this number crunching and research has spit out. Six here. players, six players this season have, have uh, win shares of at least four. Montrez Harold, Joe Ingles, Chris Boucher, Bobby Portis, Thad Young, and Jalen Brunson. Um, Either of the Jazz guys, or just you're just talking, no, you're Ingles, just moving. No, I did. I did. Ingles was in that list. Oh, Ingles was there, but, but Clarkson is not. Um, Clarkson isn't would, Clarkson the name of the uh, food processor that? No, it's a Clarkman. It's a Clark. Remember when Kramer installs a food processor in his shower? And David Putty immediately <laughs> remember immediately like, is that Clarkson? Is it a Clarkman? Anyway, I'm sorry. <laughs> I really, by the way, I sympathize with Kramer's desire to live his life in a warm shower. That really spoke to me as a human. Just all of humanity. I don't need you. I don't want you. I just want to be in a nice warm shower. Um, my daughter takes the world's longest showers. She's 15 now. She's been taking the world's longest showers since she was at least 10. And I can't even criticize that much because my showers are stupidly long, not as long as hers. Um, All right, so so give me the names again. Ingles, Boucher, we already talked about. I agree he, with you. He's He's been fantastic. Um, th- I mean, the, the, the guys who at least made that cutoff, uh, Montrez Harrell, Joe Ingles, Chris Boucher, Bobby Portis, Thad Young, Jalen Brunson. Um, Clarkson doesn't make – Clarkson's actually like 14th in win shares or whatever. is way below the threshold. He's like 3.1. So, like, he's – he wouldn't qualify based on historical standards um, using that particular metric, but obviously he's still in the conversation because of all that he has done scoring wise for a team that has been the best in the NBA for most of the season. So that would be, I think that's the list is like, is there anybody you can think of that should be at least in the discussion as we say, I've I've got some good ones for you. Um, So I think if Clarkson and Ingles go one, two, in some order, 
and this is just me projecting the total ballot finish. I would bet on a Maverick finishing third and Jalen Brunson would be one candidate. I think Tim Hardaway Jr. has had an under the radar, very good season that he stamped on. I think it was Friday when he put up 42 or Thursday when he put up 42 in Detroit when Lucas sat in a game that the Mavericks, you know, again, that was an important game. Um, Tim Hardaway is averaging 16 a game, 38% shooting from three on a lot of attempts. I think he's done a really nice job for them. And Brunson has been outstanding all year long, has great chemistry with Luca. He's an absolute bulldog. He's shooting like 70% or something ridiculous at the basket, considering how small he is. I think those are both great names. You want to, you want a lukewarm Laker take? Hit me. Is Montrez Harrell the best six-man candidate on the Lakers? Statistically, I'd say yes. Okay. I, I, would, I would say yes. Um, between him and Kuzma? Kyle Kuzma has started 29 games. He will end up coming off the bench for more games than that. He is eligible for six-man of the year by definition. 13 yeah. points, six boards, two assists a game, 44% shooting, 36% from three. And I just think a fine, all-around, tough, gritty, smart, high IQ season. And this is one of my gripes with six-man of the year voting is people see 29 starts and they just disqualify. He's not a real six-man. And by the way, Ingles is also piling up a fair number of starts because of injuries. This came up most famously with Lamar Odom one season when he had to start a lot of games for the Lakers because of injuries. And also that he's awesome or, and was an awesome player. And there were some people, well, is that really a true six man? Like, you know, the true six man is the Lou Williams, Jamal Crawford comes off the bench all the time, bench spark plug. And my response was always, I don't know. You could argue that part of being an awesome six man is being an awesome fill in starter when your yes. team needs you to start. And so I don't necessarily look at a, a large number of starts as any kind of disqualifier or any kind of, you know, Contra contradiction to the essence of what a six man is supposed to be Kyle Kuzma, depending now they've got this Schroeder injury absence. So he may actually start if they, if they put him in the starting lineup, he won't be eligible. It's that close. If he's eligible, I, I think he's a perfectly fine candidate. If he's so, and I have, I, I'm, I'm with you. I like, as long as you meet the, the mathematical definition of, of, of came off the bench for more games than you started. Um, I have no problem with it. If, if it's going to be Kuzma over Harrell, not necessarily for the top and slot. And I'm not saying yeah. I'm not saying he deserves it over Harrell. Harrell yeah. is a more traditional six-man. He's averaging like 14 a game. He's had a nice season. Yeah. His defensive limitations are pretty glaring. And I just – I think Kuzma has just been a better player, I think, than Harrell this season. Um, so that that is a worthy discussion. The one that people are going to think be having more than that, of course, is the one where we started, which is Ingles versus Clarkson and – I think it's fascinating because Jordan Clarkson fits the prototype of, you know, or at least the recent prototype of the sixth man guy who handles the ball, shoots a lot, scores a lot, not particularly efficient. And he's taking almost twice as many field goal attempts per game as, as Joe Ingles is. So here's, here's a, just a question as we, as we mull that particular debate, those two, um, is there value to, to, to Jordan Clarkson shooting a lot? Like his efficiency and, and Joe Ingles' efficiency is just off the charts, ridiculously amazing. But Jordan Clarkson is he he's taken more shots than any sixth man candidate in the league, I think by far. But is there something to the fact that he can create, that he can put the ball in play? Is there something to Kobe assists uh, to borrow from Kirk Goldsberry? Like, is there if we were trying to make the argument for Jordan Clarkson over Ingles? 
based on not just points per game. He's got, he, he wins the points per game battle because he takes twice as many shots as Joe Ingles, almost twice as many. So is there a counter argument to say, but you know what, there's value to that. It's interesting because oftentimes I would agree with you that there is just easing the burden on everybody else and letting them slide into including including Joe Ingles, including Joe Ingles. Interestingly, you know, Clarkson plays a lot in this. The Jazz don't have like a five man bench. They generally have a nine man rotation and Clarkson plays a lot of his minutes in a lineup that was has been generally very good with Conley, Ingles, Gobert and George Niang. So there are two starters in that lineup and some very good players. And so you could argue, is he actually taking too many shots away from Conley and Ingles? But I I think there is value. And yeah, his efficiency is down to 42% overall, 34% for three, but he's a good playmaker when he passes the ball. I think he's been a good decision maker, extra pass guy for their offense. I I get why he's sort of fading a little bit. I still think he's going to win. I mean, even Perk tweeted last night, it's a lock. Jordan Clarkson is going to win, lock it up, lock it away. And Perk, then he said, carry on, carry on. Vivid Seats wants to get you to the games you love this spring. Experience every pitch, assist, and game-winning shot live and in person. And the best part, each transaction is a step toward a free 11th ticket with Vivid Seats rewards. Score unbeatable perks like free tickets, surprise seat upgrades, and annual birthday deals. As the official ticketing partner of ESPN, Vivid Seats is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with code LOW. That's code LOW, L-O-W-E, my last name, the name of this podcast. Visit vividseats.com or download the app today. Vivid Seats, experience it live. Spring is the best time to add new challenges to your training just in time for summer and warmer days. It's also the best time of the year to take a new look at your fitness routine, dial it up a notch, and continue powering on. Peloton's varying class lengths were designed with your personalized training in mind. Whether you'd like to add a 10-minute course session at the end of your strength class or take a 60-minute power zone ride to increase your endurance, Peloton classes help you focus on your needs and goals. They are also made to challenge you with a variety of classes like boot camps, boxing, okay? Full body strength, marathon training, all created to grow your skills or push you to improve in what you already excel in. Peloton's expert coaches and nonstop vibes, hashtag vibes, will push you to new levels of strength and endurance, keeping you on your toes while giving you the professional coaching you need. With a wide variety of options, whether you prefer to run outdoors, row, or ride at home, or strength train at the gym, Peloton has something for you. Get your head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. That's OnePeloton.com. Was was Thad Young on your list? Win shares, yeah, he yes. he he's another guy that's faded um, a little bit when he was just he was a Stacy King called him Thadjic Johnson early in the season, <sighs> just dishing like eight assists a game every game seemingly. He's faded a little bit, and he's also started um, some games. I th- I think he's a he's a perfectly good candidate. He's had a wonderful season for them. I think he's probably been, you know, pre Vucevic trade. I think he was their second best player by. A pretty easy margin. By the way, another bull, just in terms of raw scoring, who will be eligible if he comes off the bench the rest of the season, is Lowry Markinen. He's averaging 15 points a game. He will be sneakily eligible for six-man of the year. That one one somehow feels like cheating. (laughs) I mean, it does, right? I I don't know why that one feels a little bit like cheating. Like, uh, uh, let me get up. Let me pull up his numbers here. He's averaging – now he's down to 14 a game, 39% from three. He started 25 games – and come off the bench for 18. If he comes off the bench for the rest of Chicago's games, he'll be eligible by one game. He'll have started one more game than off the bench. I just thought I'm not going to vote for him. I just think it's a, it's a, by scoring numbers and shooting numbers, if he's eligible, you have to at least give him a cursory glance. It's just when you watch the Bulls, 
Markkinen's numbers almost surprised me because when I watched the Bulls, aside from a, a hot shooting game here or there, I don't come away often thinking, well, he really impacted winning no. tonight in this game. No, no. Um, one other thing, though, which makes it, 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 it a more academic exercise, at least for me, I think six man of the year has to come from a winning team. You know, whether, whether it's a contender or not, which is, mo- you know, most of them, most years it's been somebody you know, on a contender. At a minimum, I think you got to be on a, on a winning team. And, and the, you know, the Bulls, they've just had a horrific season. So I'm, I'm going to scratch. When I actually have to sit down to, to do the ballot, I'm not considering Thad Young or, or Well, then I'm going to make Larry you Mark. very, very angry with Uh-oh. another guy that I just wanted to at least mention because he's on a bad team, although a team that apparently could, is unbeatable against the Dallas Mavericks, and he's a rookie. And so people are looking at him for another award. Tyrese Halliburton, sneakily eligible at six. Not sneakily. He's eligible at six man of the year. He's been very good this season for the Kings. I don't really get I, – I mean, he has a pretty solid case, to be honest with you. 13 a game, good shooting, decent defender, really good passer. Like, you know, he's starting now in the absence of De'Aaron Fox – but he's eligible. Love Halliburton. Who doesn't love Tyrese Halliburton at this point? And yes, I had making my, li- I had multiple lists here and he was on like my, my list of like deep cuts. He's, he's down there. Um, Let's do some deep cuts. Let's do some really deep cuts. Well, that's, some, that's about as deep as I got. You want to, <laughs> right, I'll give, I'll give you some deep cuts. My deep cuts are just, I want to just mention this guy's name on the low post podcast. Cause he's having a nice season. That's all. I just want to mention him. I just want to let speak his name. Just let the fans know that, yes, we are noticing you, Nas Reed, having a fine season <laughs> off the bench for the Minnesota Timberwolves. Really good. I mean that. Good face-up game. Good shooter. Has made progress on defense. Yes, Furkan Korkmaz. I see you. We see you. Having a very nice season off the bench for the Sixers. Has outplayed Shake Milton for the last 30 games. You know what? Dwight Howard, I see the technicals. I see the antics. I also see seven points and eight boards on 60% shooting. He'll never have a good on-off split because he's backing up one of the MVP candidates. He's had a very good season. Here's the, here's the deepest one. Not a candidate for sixth man of the year. Not a candidate. I just want to make clear. I just want to say this guy's name. Ty Jerome has had a really nice season for the Oklahoma City Thunder. And now we will move on. That's the end of my, that's the end of my ridiculous deep cuts. Are there any other names that are less deep, shallower than that that you would like to bring up? Um, I at least like stopped on for a moment, Miles Bridges, and f- thought about Tyler Hero. Um, no, Tyler Hero's out. He hasn't played. I know. No, I know. These were just these were as I was cycling through and making sure that I had exhausted. I didn't miss somebody from some team who who had least moderate statistics to to qualify. Um, that was pretty much it. That was you know, we've we've hit we've hit all of them. Um, I'm glad he brought up Miles Bridges. Because if there are two candidates that I think deserve serious, serious consideration, and I have not seen their names pop up at all, and serious consideration, like I don't, I don't, I don't think to win it, but it's nice to see your name on the ballot. Right? You'd like to see your name on the, fin- the final, like, hey, I finished third. I'm sure their agents would love to see their names on, on the ballot. Um, uh, two that deserves consideration in that, in that regard, Miles Bridges is one. 12 a game and really he's probably almost at 20 a game in the last month on borderline 50, 40, 90 shooting and also extra points for just murdering people on the regular in games with his dunks and Doug McDermott for the Pacers 13, a game 52 overall 38% from three 
half his shots are coming at the basket. He's turned into one of the great rim attackers in the league in a second as a secondary option. I think he's had a great season. And when you consider how many injuries the Pacers have had, like all across their roster, without McDermott sort of filling a lot of those gaps at a lot of different positions, I think they're even even in a worse spot um, than they were. So those are the two. And you named Portis is another one that I think deserves deserves some love too. But those are the two that I that I think you have to give just more of a uh, I'm being thorough. Let me look at them. Those guys have had Bridges and McDermott have had really, really good seasons. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I think um, I think it's good to cast a wide net on this award because it's easy to get fixated on, you know, we, we have been on Clarkson from day one. That, that's why Perk can, can declare it over, right? Because that's one where it felt like it's felt like he's been there the whole time. And because he has the scoring lead among bench guys. But it, I think it's a more nuanced race than that. And I think it should be. Um, and... Yeah, I mean, if, if Ingles and Clarkson are both on the ballot somewhere, and it's a three-man ballot. Who's who's that third guy? That's that's where most people will be spending a lot of time. And then you have teams like the Grizzlies that just have like a bunch of good bench players averaging ten points a game, right? Like no one is going to vote for DeAnthony Melton or Desmond Bain or Brandon Clark. Like they're not going to, but they're all having nice seasons. It's just hard to it's just hard to make it's hard to make this six the third spot. It's just hard. Um, but I, I like this one, even you know. Then you have guys like Campaign is having a great season for Phoenix. Just doesn't play enough minutes, doesn't put up enough raw stats. I just I like looking at these guys because they're night to night, they're overlooked important parts of, of their teams, and uh, and it's it's a fun it's a fun race to do. If I had to predict the order of finish, what would you? If you had to predict the order of finish, not your ballot, yeah. just how the voting breaks out, what would you predict? I think it's going to go Clarkson, Ingles. Maybe Harold. I think I would predict Clarkson, Ingles, Brunson, but I th- I think you're probably going to be right that Harold is ends up he won last year, right? You know, so there's a certain and residual, and he's on the Lakers, and people see him on TV a lot, and he's still got the numbers, right? Like he just that feels like where it'll go. I have, I have no idea what my ballot's going to look like. I think those ballot we're getting those ballots tomorrow, aren't we? I don't know. I think I th- yeah, no, those are coming soon. Um, but th- those are, those are, I don't think I missed anyone that really, I wanted, I wanted to highlight those. Those are the main ones. Was there anything we didn't get to about playoff races you wanted to get to East four to seven is kind of getting interesting. One to three in the East remains interesting. Milwaukee, Brooklyn tomorrow is a big game. If the bucks win that things get sort of interesting at the one, two and three spots. Philly currently is number one now and they have an angel food cake schedule. Uh, that's an important race. Anything else you want to get to? I have I have no idea how the East is going to shake out. By the way, I have no idea how to how to assess any of those. I just and I have no idea how to assess the Nets. No, nobody does. It's going to be like the weirdest, um, uh, uh, weird weirdest co favorite pseudo favorite whatever we whatever they are going in. It's going to be the like the most impossible to assess ever. Um, no, the only other thing is uh, as we were exchanging uh, texts over the last couple of days, I I did note like I would I would like since you went out of your way to mock. And and to deride me uh, over my suggestion of a deeper MVP ballot, I think you called it wimpy. Wimpy, the Howard Beck called... wimpy MVP proposal. Yes, I did. Is that calling the proposal wimpy or me wimpy? You're kind of both. Both. Yeah. All right. I'll take that. Um, you know, what do you, you want your proposals. You want a hundred players on the MVP, a hundred <laughs> slots on the MVP ballot. For all four hundred and fifty players are on it. What's your proposal and, again? And and cupcakes for everybody afterward. Yes. Um, I proposed this, as you know, when you and Rachel and I got together for the Drunk with Power podcast last summer, 
the first time I think I had floated this. I now more than ever, I feel like there is a, a very strong basis for going seven deep, eight deep, maybe 10 deep on the MVP. You just started a movie trailer now more than ever in these times more than <laughs> in ever a, in a world. In a world where people are debating too many MVP candidates and someone might get one hero emerge and it's Howard Beck. I always wanted to be the hero in that movie trailer just once. Then they would cut to a shot of you searching on LexisNexis. Like, and read, in 1972, he read Auerbach said this about MVP. You liked that nugget. Come on. You liked I, the Red Auerbach quote. That's yeah, fine. Someone's got to go look up old Red Auerbach quotes. In, in retrospect, in the telling of basketball history, the Celtics invented everything. So let Red, let Red have yeah. it. Um, so the, the way I look at MVP is, is this. very So seriously. So one, Major League Baseball has had a 10-man MVP ballot forever. Since like 1931, it has not cheapened anything. It has not hurt anybody. There is pre uh, a, a precedent for this, albeit in another sport. Actual MVP contenders, right? So, Zach, every year you and I will go through this exercise. All of NBA fandom and punditry will go through this exercise. And it's really two, maybe three guys that are really serious MVP candidates, right? We'll talk about five, 10, 15, and we'll make our lists. But it's really only one or two guys who are actually going head to head for consideration at the top of the ballot. Sometimes three. So this year, it's really Jokic and Embiid, right? And if you want to say Giannis deserves to still be in there, I'll, I'll take that. He's probably third on my ballot right now. He, he certainly um, made his case on national television yesterday with 49 points on 21 of 36 shooting, four of eight from three, uh, outdueling Kevin Durant's 42 points. It was maybe the finest scoring performance of his career just in terms of the jump hooks, the jumpers, all that. He he's he reminded everyone, hey, I know I won twice in a row. Nobody wants to vote for me again, but I'm, I'm pretty freaking good. And by the way, I'm going to block Kevin Durant, who's impossible to block while I'm at it. So there's three guys who, who I you know, two to three guys, again, who are plausibly MVP. And then the reason we have a five-man ballot is because the fourth and fifth guy, you know my whole thing, right? Like I have this 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 standard, right? I think it's both individual excellence and team success, right? So I'm not going to, you know, I did not vote for Russell Westbrook the one year because I thought they didn't win enough games. I think it has to come from the top echelon. So the first two or three guys are going to be the guys who check both of those boxes, who had dominant individual seasons and played for teams that were near the top of the standings. And what we do with the fourth and fifth slots, Zach, every year is, well, somebody, somebody wasn't quite as, as uh, couldn't check one of those boxes or they're a little shy on that. They're not as dominant or their team wasn't in the top echelon. So like Steph Curry and Dame Lillard and Luka Doncic are all guys who have had incredible individual seasons, done great things for their teams, have absolutely kept their teams afloat, kept their teams in the playoffs or the play in. And so we're, we like those three are all going to be really strong candidates at, at four and five. I don't think any of those three guys can get to three or higher. I just I just don't because of the, the way that I view how MVP is uh, the, the you know, the, the so who's third then Giannis is third on your ballot. I think he's third. And I haven't even mentioned Kawhi Leonard, who deserves serious consideration. And as, as um, you know, yeah, he's missed a lot of games, but no more than Embiid, um, I believe at last I looked. Um, and then you've got the. Well, the Suns and the Jazz are both good, but is it about Chris Paul or is it about Booker? If you're going to go pick one of them, it's Gobert or Mitchell, if you're going to pick one of them. And then you've got guys like, you know, Jimmy Butler, you know, like where would the Heat be without Jimmy Butler? And not only that, but like dude missed a couple of weeks with COVID and ever since he's been back, they've actually been pretty good. And you know, Jimmy they, Butler has had the most under the radar, under talked about great season in the NBA this year. Agreed. And so 
of course he's a good candidate for maybe the fifth slot, right? Again, not top of the ballot, but we have at least two classes of MVP uh, candidates for the ballot. The guys at the top who could actually win. And then the other guys who have just had outstanding seasons, but there's some flaw on the resume for that season. So this isn't about trying to change the outcome at the top. This wouldn't change the outcome at the top. This is about recording for posterity. This is about, we look at, at on basketball reference, we go see how many times did the guy make the MVP ballot at all? How many appearances do they have? How many MVP points overall when we're ranking guys? And somebody will come back with, well, that's what all NBA is for. No, 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 that's not what all NBA is for. Because one, it's a different standard. We factor winning much more into MVP than all NBA, but two, MV, all NBA, is still three teams of two guards, two forwards, and a center. So it's not the top 15 players ranked. It's three groups of guys based on position. A deeper MVP ballot would allow us to still go Jokic, Embiid, Giannis, and then figure out some order of Lillard, Doncic, Curry, Chris Paul, maybe, Jimmy Butler, maybe. And I think most of those guys, Zach, will also will, will end up out of 100 ballots. We will all have a different assortment of three, four, fives, right? That's how this usually goes. There is some diversity of thought, but I do think there tends to be a little bit of groupthink on these things and people don't want to stray as far down ballot a little bit more, but I think it would open up more opportunity for guys that were absolutely deserving. And so that we don't end at the end of it, say, oh my God, not a single person voted for Jimmy Butler after the season he just had, because that could happen. You just said it. He's had the most under the radar, great season in the NBA this year. He, he, he might not get a single fifth place vote. He probably will get a couple, but it, it could happen. I like the idea of a deeper ballot. It won't change the MVP race. It will just simply acknowledge and record for posterity for history. Um, these were the other guys who had outstanding seasons and deserved to be in the conversation, as we always say now. Are you happy? You got to make yeah, your case. Yeah, yeah. Get to do your thing. Okay. Yeah, I got to do my, and, and now you can call it wimpy again and Rachel can mock me again and, you know, we'll go back to normal. But I, I just, I think there's a legitimate discuss. Do you, you, you have nothing, nothing to, to say about this other than I'm I working. don't mind it. I don't mind it. I just sort of like the thought exercise. I like the harder. I like that. It's a harder choice. Like I have to try to come up with a way to justify why guy a is the fifth spot and guy B gets left out. And to your point, sometimes there is no way to actually justify it. Their, their cases are so close. You can yeah. see whatever you want to see. There's no difference between them. It's all in the eye of the beholder. Do you like a guy that's a little bit better defender? Do you like a guy that's a little better playmaker? Whatever, you know, then you get into minutes and availability and it just becomes sort of a, a morass of, of stuff. So I get it. I just sort of like to get into the morass, I guess, you know, um, but I don't, I don't mind it. I, I actually, I'm surprised they haven't really considered it, to be honest with you. Well, it, it would also, because it's, the conversation and because we obsess about MVP all year anyway, does it draw in more people, more, more fan bases, more people to debate it? I mean, like that's, you know, the NBA is always in favor of things that will get us to all discuss the NBA more. Right. So th they could have some benefits for that. That's not what I, why I would want to do it. It also I just think could, it, it also could result in, in even more offense taken by fan bases. Can you imagine if there was a 10 man MVP ballot this year and neither Mitchell nor Gobert uh, appeared on it or neither Paul would appear on it. Chris Paul would appear on every uh, yes. a 10 man ballot, uh, yes. but there would be, it would be just as bad as when LeBron said, Hey, no slander, but we don't want to, <laughs> we don't want to pick any jazz guys. Um, <laughs> all right. Howard Beck of sports illustrated. It's always good to, uh, to see you read everything. Howard does listen to his podcast. Howard. Great to see you, buddy. You too, Zach. Thanks.
And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms or restrictions apply.